So I grew up on Long Island, New York, about 20 minutes outside of New York City. Uh, it was in a town called Hicksville. There was nothing hick about it. Um, it was named after an Irish potato farmer, but it was a very built-up town. Uh, my father was a, uh, was a pastor at a church, a little Christian church there in Hicksville. And growing up as, as a little boy in, in uh, Hicksville, Long Island, that part of New York, I realized pretty quickly that to be a Protestant Christian um, there in New York, you were a bit of a minority. Uh, I remember the first time we were invited to a Catholic service. And my dad had some sort of part to play in the service. And I just remember sitting in that Catholic church just a few blocks down from our church, sitting in that building, looking around, going, wow, they put a lot into this place. Uh, A lot of stained glass, a lot of statues. And about uh, 10 minutes into the service, I leaned over to my mom and I said, we need to buy dad a robe. I mean, everybody had like a robe or a hat. I mean, he's there in a suit looking like a nerd. I mean, you know, need to get him a smoking box or something. But... uh, (laughs) But just, just noticing that this is different. In fact, 50% of, uh, of my, the kids in my elementary school class, they, they would talk about after school going to something called CCD. And uh, they had all these, all these stories about nuns and priests. And it took me a while before I understood that was catechism they were, they were talking about. And the, the other 50% of my elementary school class, well, every once in a while, the boys would come to school and they'd wear these little beanies on their head. They called them yarmulkes. Uh, uh, usually around Christmas time, a mom would come into our class and bring these dreidels, these tops for us to play with, and, and chocolate money, and, and we'd have a blast learning about Hanukkah. And, and then every once in a while, too, my teacher would say, hey, tomorrow, you know, everybody's out of school. We're celebrating a holiday. And I'd be like, great, well, what's the holiday? And the teacher would say, oh, it's Rosh Hashanah. Yay, Rosh Hashanah, um, and, uh, or Yom Kippur. And, and all I knew is that I became an early fan of Jewish holidays um, <laughs> because they got me out of school in New York. And I was like, let's celebrate. Um, I, I think there's something fascinating about the Jewish holidays. And, and one of the things I think is fascinating about Jewish holidays is that people didn't come up with them. God did. There's just something cool in the idea that God commanded his people to party. I mean, there's just something cool about that. Some of you are going, totally obeyed God this weekend. It's, you need to listen on to the rest of the sermon. But, but God commanded his people to party. In fact, he gives them seven holidays. About 3,500 years ago, God gives his Jewish people seven holy days for them to celebrate, for them to feast, for them to have festivals. And I'm not going to suggest that we need to be celebrating Jewish uh, festivals and holidays this morning. But there's some principles and some practices within these holidays that if we get them and they translate into our life, they become game changers. And I think the first question really is, why? Why did God command his people to party? Why did he give them seven holidays to celebrate? And I think the answer is simple. His people needed something to do while they waited. If you've ever been to the DMV accompanied by a five-year-old boy or younger, you know what I'm talking about. You know, kids, they can't just sit there and do nothing. They can't just wait. And, and really, adults, we don't do so well at the whole waiting thing either. Um, we're not good waiters. We, we, we're doers. As Americans, we like to do things. But, but, uh, but the last thing we like to do is wait. We, we are quick-aholics. We want what we want when we want it. <laughs> 
we will take extra time to find the shortest line in the grocery store for checkout if, it, if we think it saves us, you know, a few seconds. We, we will pull up, we will switch lanes to pull up two car lengths ahead of somebody else if we think that saves us time. We will go onto YouTube and wait for that skip ad button. Even if it's like three seconds left at the advertisement, we don't have time for that. We will skip that ad to get to our video. We are quickaholics. We don't like to wait. We like to do. Uh, we like to get things done. That's, that's kind of who we are. Um, the, we have even this expression that is, don't just stand there. Do something, right? Yeah. So there's this book that came out several years ago by a guy named Henry Blackaby called Experiencing God. And Henry Blackaby suggested that if you really want to experience God, then you got to get rid of the whole idea of don't just stand there, do something. In fact, you have to embrace the idea, don't just do something, stand there. Stand there, wait on God. If you want to experience him at a whole new level, you have to wait on God. And if we're honest this morning, we don't even like to wait on God. God often seems late. Waiting on God leads often to wondering about God. And we'll ask God questions. God, will I ever get married? Will I ever get that new job? Will I ever have financial peace? Will my kids ever grow out of this phase? Um, will I ever recover from a health condition? Or will I ever have a time in my life where I don't have a health condition to recover from? And uh, let me just say, if, if you feel like you're in a season right now where you're not waiting on God for something, just keep waiting. <laughs> Because that season will arrive. And, and, and we go time to time where we have these seasons where we're waiting on God. In fact, we could say that we're all in the same boat where we're actually all waiting on God still. We're waiting on some promises God gave us still to happen. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. We're waiting for this old earth to wipe away and for a new earth to arrive. And, and for there to be an end of sorrow and sadness. And so we're all still waiting on God. And I think there's two factors at play when it comes to waiting on God. There is God's will and there is God's timing. There's God's will and there's God's timing. They're, they're equal factors. They're very important factors. But this is where I think there's often irony. See, I think often we'll, we'll claim a frustration. Our, our frustration will say, I'm so frustrated because I don't know God's will for my life. And I would kind of argue, we, we know God's will for our life. I mean, he spent a lot of time writing a lot of scriptures telling us what he'd like us to do while we're here on earth. I mean, you can just read Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Jesus did a whole sermon on a mount saying, hey, here's some will for your life. You see, I think what we really mean is our, we're frustrated because we don't know God's timing. We don't know God's timing, or we don't like God's timing, or we don't agree with God's timing. But when it comes to waiting on God, it's important that we walk both in God's will and God's timing. You know, waiting on God's timing is hard. The only thing harder than waiting on God's timing is wishing you had. You see, it's not so much for us about the doing as it is the timing. And God's timing is everything. And so God has an answer for what to do while you wait. God has an, had an answer for his people 3,500 years ago. It's a very similar answer to what he has for us today. And so God's answer is, while you wait, celebrate. 
Not a bad answer from God. And I want us to look at these seven holidays for a second. See if we can draw out some principles. See if we can draw out some practices. I'm going to start with the four spring holidays first. And I promise, if you just stick with me, there will be a payoff, okay? So if it seems a little bit too much information, just hang with me. I promise a payoff. But, uh, but I want to start with these seven holidays. And I know what you're thinking. We're going to turn to the biggest party book in the Bible. And you're right. So you're going to want to open your Bible to Leviticus, all right? I, Knew you were expecting that. Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 is where we're starting this morning. And it says this, starting in verse 4. It says, These are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. The very first holiday ever recorded in human history is this thing called Passover. Passover. It's where the Jews would... um, would celebrate and remember how God delivered them out of Egypt. But they remember the, the method in which he had done that. They were slaves in Egypt. And so, so God sends ten plagues to convince Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go. And it takes the very last plague, the tenth plague, the worst plague, in order to convince Pharaoh to do it. And so the angel of death comes into the Egyptian land and kills their firstborn. And the Jews are spared if they have painted lamb's blood over their, over their doorway. And so the angel of death passes over their homes and spares their firstborn. For the Egyptians, it costs them their firstborn child. For the Jews, it costs them a lamb. And so the Jews, still to this day, will celebrate the holiday of Passover. And there's a promise they remember. And it's this promise that God will rescue us. If we wait on God, then God will rescue us. It's the promise they waited on then. And it's the promise they still celebrate and remember today. And then right after the Passover, on the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Festival of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. And so this was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or the other name they gave it was the Passover Week. So after the Passover day, you celebrated the Passover week. And you celebrated this by eating bread made without yeast. And the reason you, did, you had bread without yeast is because it re- reminded them of when they had to leave Egypt quickly... And so they didn't have time to bake these beautiful loaves of bread. They had to make kind of this snack, flatbread, that they could take along for the journey. It was made without yeast. And so to celebrate this holiday, still to this day, the Jews will take, they will take months before cleaning their homes so there's not even a speck of yeast in the house. It's where we get the whole idea of spring cleaning. It came from the Jewish holidays. That you would clean your house so there's not even a speck of yeast. You would remove the yeast from the house. Just like the promise that you would remember And that was that if we wait on God, God will remove our sin. If we wait on God, God will remove our sin. They spend a week remembering this promise. And then this week, within this week, led to the next holiday. Uh, God says, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf, a bundle of the first grain you harvest. Now this, this holiday, this was called, um, oh, and you, he's to wave the sheaf before the Lord, so it'll be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the, the day after the Sabbath, which that's important. It's called the offering of the first fruits, or the days of Omer. And this always occurred the Sunday after the first Sabbath, Saturday, after the day of Passover. So wherever that fell, it would usually fall during the Passover week. The first Sunday after the Saturday after the Passover. 
And what it marked was the spring season. It marked the wheat harvest, the grain harvest. And so God is, is providing this grain harvest. And they would take the very first products of, of this harvest and they'd give it back to God in celebration. And so the first Sunday, it was called the first day of Omer. And because it was the beginning of the spring, um, and because it was a celebration of God gives us bread. In fact, in Omer, in Omer, it was a measurement. It was about a handful of grain, which represented enough grain to make enough bread for one adult for one day. It was the idea that God gives us our daily bread. And so God provides for us day after day. God gives us new food, and he gives us the promise of new life. New spring. That if we wait on God, God will give us new life. And then there was the next holiday from there. It says, from that day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf and the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. So seven days of seven. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath. And then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. And so what happened is they count off seven days of seven from the first day of Omer. And, uh, and you, would have, you would have this festival called the Feast of Weeks, the Shabbat. Or as later it was called in Greek, Pentecost. Because it was 50 days after that first day of Omer. And on this day, the Jews threw the biggest barbecue you've ever seen. I'm serious. They, they had all these sacrifices and they would cook all these meats. They would bring in all the bread from the spring grain harvest and bake these beautiful loaves of bread. And they would just make barbecue sandwiches and hand them out to everybody, including the poor, the foreigner. It was a huge celebration. It also happened to fall on the same day, uh, when, the same day that God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. And so the people would use the celebration to remember this promise that God will give his people new instruction. That if we wait on God, he will always give us new instruction. And so for 1,500 years, the Jews celebrated these spring holidays. For, for 1,500 years, they remembered these promises as they waited on God. And then after 1,500 years... Something happened. It's in Mark chapter 14 in the New Testament. It says on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? You see, Jesus chose his last meal before his crucifixion, his last supper, to be the Passover meal and celebration. And so, get this, while the rest of the Jews are celebrating, if we wait on God, God will one day rescue us. And there Jesus is sitting with his disciples, breaking bread, drinking wine, telling them that, hey guys, God's doing something right now. It's a big deal. And then it would go on into the Passover week, where the rest of the Jews will be celebrating and remembering the promise that if we wait on God, God will one day remove our sin and there during the Passover week is Jesus dying on a cross, removing our sin, the sin of the world. And then on the first Sunday after the Saturday, during the Passover week, the first day of Omer, the first day of spring, that Sunday morning, Jesus comes alive, resurrected. And while the rest of the Jewish world is celebrating, if we wait on God, he will give us new life. Jesus resurrects on that very day, going, I brought you new life. And in fact, he walks around for 40 days during the days of Omer, resurrected. And he ascends to heaven just 10 days before the next holiday, the day of Pentecost. And we know on that day, 
that the disciples were all together in a single room and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were able to proclaim new instruction to, to all the people there in Jerusalem. And that day the church was born. And we're here because of what happened on that day. So while the rest of the Jewish world is celebrating, one day if we wait on God, he will give us new instruction. God shows up on that day and gives his people new instruction. You see, when we wait on God, we've got to be careful. We don't want to focus so much on what we want God to do that we fail to see what God is already doing. You with me? Yeah. It's important. Let me just tell you, church, you have an appointment with a blessing. You have an appointment with a promise. But in order to recognize it and receive it, you will have to wait on God's timing. Not your neighbor's timing. That's a different schedule. Not your timing. That's a way different schedule. But I can assure you that you have an appointment with a blessing. That you have an appointment with a promise of God. And in order to recognize it and receive it, you'll have to wait on God. And Kirk talked about last week where he talked about grace. So there's two dimensions of grace. There's, there's the active grace. There's the passive grace. And we want to make sure we're living out the active grace. Well, there's two different dimensions also to waiting on God. There's passively waiting and there's actively waiting. And so God, through these holy days, gives us principles and practices that if we pl- apply them to our life today, they're great principles and practices so that we can actively wait on the promises of God. They're still game changers. You see, six months after God gave his people the command to celebrate these spring holidays, he gave them the fall holidays. In fact, they're going to be celebrating some of these soon, the Jews to this day. In Leviticus 23, 24, it says, Say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. This is called the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah. It's about to happen on September 9th. And, uh, and they would start this day together with trumpets, this trumpet blast, where they would gather the people together. And on that day, they were to do no work. They were just to prepare and get their minds and hearts ready with this one promise that God will meet with us. That if we wait on God, God will meet with us. And so I want to talk about some of the, uh, the practices they would do that translate to us. See, I think God still wants his people to do this. And that is rest. Rest was always a part of these holidays. In fact, I think we kind of build them into ours. Let me just tell you, my Thanksgiving Day nap is just as important as my Thanksgiving Day meal, okay? It's just, that's part of the holiday. We're getting ready to celebrate Labor Day by not doing any labor. <laughs> there, there, there is significance in rest. And sometimes we think rest is a waste, but not in God's economy. Not in God's economy. When we're willing to stop, breathe, and do nothing, it allows God to be up to something. See, see, there's this undeniable transformation that happens when we rest and let God do. And so rest, God still wants his people to take times to rest so that us to do nothing so God can do something transformational. And in that time, he wants us to reflect The Jews would reflect, they would prepare their hearts and minds for what God would do. You know, I think to this day, as we rest, there's really two gaps in our lives to reflect on. There's the gap from where we are today to where we want to be tomorrow. 
We've got this idea that one day, you know, we want to be over here, but right now we're here. And so there's this gap. And so, and and maybe this, we set goals to get over here. Maybe we set strategies. Maybe we have some prayers. Maybe we're hoping for some blessings to get here one day. And it's fine to reflect upon that gap, but if that's all we reflect on, then it gets a little depressing. And so we have to reflect on the other gap, and that is where we are today as opposed to where we were yesterday. We have to take time to reflect on that gap because when we look at that gap, then we can start to see, whoa, God came through on a blessing here. Wow, God provided in this moment. Wow, God transformed me to here. And if the Lord got me from here to there, then that same Lord can get me from here to there. But we have to take the time to reflect on what God has done so we can hold on to the promise of what God will still do. The second of their fall holidays was on the 10th day of the seventh month. It's the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, or as they call it, Yom Kippur. And there's this promise that God will cover and remove our sins. In fact, on this Day of Atonement, for 1,500 years, the Jews, they would do a whole bunch of sacrifices. But one of the interesting ones, they had two goats. Two goats were brought to the high priest, the holiest person there within the Jewish religion. They were brought to the high priest. The high priest would cast lots, throw dice, kind of decide which goat has what fate. And if you were a goat, neither fate was good. I'll just be honest. It wasn't great to be a goat on that day. Um, and so one goat... if the, the the lots were cast. That goat was getting its neck slit, the blood drained into a bowl, and then the high priest would take the bowl of blood and pour it on the Ark of the Covenant in the holiest place of the temple. And, and with the hopes of perhaps God's, perhaps this blood will cover our sin, at least for a year. And then the other goat, the high priest would go ahead, he'd place his hands upon this goat, and he'd pray and confess all the sins of the Jewish people, everything he knew. Brother John, we all know, did this last week. Sister Sue, she did this. It was terrible. Please, goat, take these sins. And he'd pray them upon the goat. And then they'd send the goat off into the desert to die with the idea that perhaps this goat, they called him the scapegoat. That's where we get that term, by the way. The scapegoat, perhaps he would be able to remove the sins of the people for a year. And it has over and over that perhaps if we wait on God, one day God will cover and remove our sins. You see, on this day, they had, to, they had to be real about sin. And in these holidays, God would often cause, call his people to repent. To repent. To deal with their sin. You see, we want the promise, but we don't always like the process. And yet God calls his people still to deal with with their sin. You ever notice how like two people can attend the same church service and one can go home filled and the other can go home empty? Another one person, they go home and all they can talk about is who wore what, who said what, who looked at me funny, who did what, you know. And, and the other person, they go home and they, they can't even talk because they're just so mesmerized that God did something in those moments significant in their life. What's the difference? It's the same service. You see, the difference is capacity. Capacity. In other words, if God's trigger to supply for your need is your acknowledgement that you have a need, then a proud look will keep you waiting. (laughs) Because pride tells God, hey, I don't really have a need. I don't really need you today. I don't really need anything from you. Yeah, I put down some prayer requests. That would be nice. Those are wants. God's going, no, no, no. I'd love to fill you with a blessing. The problem is you have no room in your life for this blessing. 
In other words, if you want to go to the next level and experience what I can do, then there's some things you're going to have to leave behind at this level. There's some attitudes, there's some behaviors, they're just not going to make it. They're taking up all the room and we got to remove those so I can fill you up so you can be at the next level. A lot of times we think we're waiting on God, but God's waiting on us. He's going, I'd love to provide this for you. I'd love to answer this request. I'm just waiting on the capacity. You show me the void and I'll fill it. And so God still wants people to take the time. We have to rest. We've got to reflect and deal with our sin. Confess it. Reveal it. Leave it behind so God can do something as he fills us. The last holiday that we celebrate is on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's Festival of Tabernacles begins. It lasts for seven days. It's a week-long festival called the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. It's called the Feast of Booths because the, uh, the Israelites would set up tents and for a week they'd go camping <laughs> together. And the idea was God will continue to provide. In fact, it was during the, the harvest of the vine. So they would bring in the juice, they would bring in the wine. And it was a week-long celebration of wine and juices and, and, and that celebration of the harvest. And they would go Camping together. And it would, it would remind them, as God took care of us in the wilderness, when we were between Egypt and the promised land, God will continue to provide for us again. And so the people, they would go camping. They would, I, you know, there's just something interesting about camping. I mean, we still do this today. Think about it. Uh, my, my connect group, my small group, um, we'll go camping about once a year together. We go to Fort Wilderness. I don't know if that counts. Um, <laughs> We're like, I think the only thing we're giving up is air conditioning, and we go when it's cool, so it's really not that big of a sacrifice. So. But um, yeah, if Chip and Dale are at your campsite, I don't know if it's camping. Um, but, uh, but there's just something cool about taking a little longer to provide shelter, taking a little longer to provide a meal, working together and relying on each other, and God sets up the same sort of things. God sets up in these festivals where, hey, deny yourself a few things so you can rely on me. You see, I I think it's interesting that God could have taken the nation of Israel straight to the promised land. It would have taken 11 days. But here's the problem. Before those 11 days, there were 400 years where the Israelite people became disconnected from their God. So God used the next 40 years so his people could get reacquainted with him. So they could be reminded that he will supply the daily bread. He will protect them. He will preserve them if they rely on God. Let me just tell you right now, your need, you're waiting on a promise, it's a setup. It's a setup for God to show up. See, you think it's a necessity, and God says, no, it's an opportunity to experience me at a whole nother level. For you to realize and understand and get it, that which is greater, your need or your supplier? He said, but you're going to have to rely on me to realize it. And when you see it, then we get to do what they got to do at every festival and party God told them to do. And that was to rejoice. To rejoice in the realization that if the dream is delayed, it does not mean it is denied. That there is a reason that God does not give us what we want earlier. That we can begin to see and realize and then rejoice in the fact that if God supplied your expectation immediately when you wanted it, then you would have been denied his experience for your life. If you didn't have to yearn so much for your need, you would not have learned so much from your need. If you had not been so broken before, you would not be so blessed now. 
And so we get to rejoice that God chose his timing over yours. But you got to go through the process to get to the rejoicing part, to the realization that allows us to rejoice. I love how God says it in Isaiah. He says, but those who will wait on the Lord, those who will wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. Why did God choose eagles? We know that when the mama eagle has her baby eaglets, the eagles are known for for making these huge nests, very comfortable nests. In fact, the mama eagle, she'll take, she'll find all these feathers and place the feathers around the nest so it's super soft. She'll take leafy branches and place it within the nest. She'll bring in food for the baby eaglets to eat, more food than they need. In fact, there'll be scraps of food lying around in this huge spacious, comfortable nest until one day Mama Eagle decides it's time. It's time for the baby eaglets to leave the nest. And so this is what we know eagles do. Mama Eagle will go into that nest and she'll begin removing the feathers. She'll begin removing the leafy branches. She'll begin removing the extra scraps of food laying around. She will make that nest. She'll begin to deconstruct it so it becomes more and more uncomfortable to stay there. In fact, we know that eagles' nests are actually made usually uh, with a bundle of thorns as their base. And so Mama Eagle will begin to reveal the thorny base. And then when Mama Eagle decides it's time, she will take the baby eaglet in her talons and she will fly the baby eaglet up to this high height and then drop the baby eaglet and watch and watch this baby eaglet trying to fly and mommy, mama eagle will decide whether or not baby eaglet's going to make it before they hit the ground and if, if they're not the mama eagle will swoop back in scoop up the baby eaglet bring it back to the thorny nest and wait till mama eagle eagle says it's time to do this again and they'll, she'll do this again in her timing she'll do this again until the day the baby eaglet learns to soar to a new height Where are you, baby eaglet? Maybe you're in that nest right now. There's nothing wrong with that. Where you're waiting on God looks like just enjoying his provisions, enjoying the comforts of where he's placed you. You weren't always there. No, he provided this for you. And you can celebrate that. You can reflect on where you once were to where you are now and enjoy what he has provided. It won't always be like that. And maybe for you, things are getting real uncomfortable. And you don't know why. You're waiting on God. You're waiting for a promise. You're waiting for a blessing. But all you see around you is things falling apart. And you're not sure why. And let me just tell you, you have an appointment with a blessing. You have an appointment with one of God's promises. And while things may seem like they're falling apart, those who wait on the Lord will soar on wings like eagles to a whole new height. You gotta wait on God. And while we wait, let's celebrate. I find it no coincidence that God chose two seasons for the Jews to celebrate. One was during the harvest of bread, of grain, and the other during the harvest of the vine, and they celebrated with juice and with wine. What the Jews did twice a year, we get to do every time we get together. We get to take the cup. We get to take the bread. And Jesus gave them a whole depth of significance. 
Jesus says, as you take that cracker, as you take that broken bread, let it remind you of those promises that were fulfilled when my body was broken on that cross. How for 1,500 years, the Jews were remembering the promise and God fulfilled it in those moments. When you take the bread, you remember the promises that I fulfilled. And when you hold the juice, remember the promises that are still yet to come. In fact, I won't even drink this cup again until I get to drink it anew with you on the day that promise is fulfilled, that I get to see you in my Father's kingdom, and we will celebrate and feast once again. And so this morning, as we take communion, as we hold the cup with the cracker and the cup with the juice, let's just practice the principles. Let's just take some moments to rest. Let's take some moments to reflect, not just on where you're going, but on where you once were. Let's take some moments to repent and be honest about some sin and then rely on God to fill us back up and we'll end rejoicing. Let's just take these next few moments to practice the principles and then I'll lead us into taking the elements and we'll close out our service. Take some moments. God, let's take the bread together. As we wait on God, let's drink the juice. Father God, thank you that no matter how hard we beg, how much we wander, you use your timing and not ours. Thank you that you did that by bringing your son into the world. You chose the perfect time to do it. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for your timing. So we are a grateful people. We are people who rely on you. We are people who will rejoice in the name of Jesus because of what you have provided and what we know you will provide. We do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.